Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Now we continue our series tonight and our topic tonight is called What is Important to God? Now as you go through the Bible, as you study the Bible, there's something that comes up over and over again which is important to God. From Genesis to Revelation, the thing that comes to the fore over and over again is that God is prepared to give and give and give providing God's people will be obedient. And even when God's people fall into rebellion, even when God's people turn their backs on God, God continues to give and to be very patient with his wayward people. So what God requires of us uh, from the outset is God wants us to be obedient. But to be obedient to what? It's quite remarkable to me, even in our fair city, Melbourne here, that you ask people who have been brought up in Western society, who have had nothing to do with Christianity though, and you ask them, what do you think would be important to God? And I guarantee that most people would say, well, probably for Christians, the things that God would want them to do would be to be the Ten Commandments, keep the Ten Commandments. Or if you were to ask another question, do you think the Ten Commandments are important to Christians today? They would say, that is, people outside the church, they would say, yes, of course the Ten Commandments are important to Christians. Everybody knows that. But those very same persons, when they come to uh, inquire of certain denominations, they are actually staggered to discover that the churches today largely teach that the Ten Commandments are old hat. They're anachronistic. They're out of date. They're not suitable for this age in which we live. They're something that is is no longer binding on Christians. And this is a quandary much to be lamented. Fancy telling people that the Ten Commandments are no longer relevant today, considering the mess, the family, the community, and we find ourselves in in general society today. Fancy saying that you can do away with those moral and ethical laws that we find in the Ten Commandments, and and, uh, despite the fact that we seem to be going backwards at a very, very fast race, ethically and morally in our world today. Now, as I've said, And over again, that is, the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. Does it make sense? Does it sound familiar? I know it sounds familiar. The truth has nothing to fear from investigation. The reason why I'm bringing that in now is because there are many people who teach and preach that you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. But what does the Bible say? That's the clue. That's, the, that's not the clue, rather. That's, the, that's the, the, the point where we go to. That's the source where we go for all our doctrinal authority. So this is what we're going to be investigating tonight, knowing full well that the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. Now, our policy from the outset has been to allow the Bible to interpret itself. In other words, we go to the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, when we're wanting to explain a particular uh, 
teaching or a doctrine or an idea from the Bible. And in fact, where do we get this impetus to do such a thing? Well, it's actually found in the book of Isaiah, this and a a number of other passages. But in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10, we read this, for precept must be upon precept. Now, a precept is just a doctrine. It's a principle or it's a teaching of some description. So it says, for preaching must, precept must be upon precept. In other words, you compare like with like, apples with apples, oranges with oranges, so to speak. So precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. So the prophet here, Isaiah, who wrote 720 years before the time of Christ, tells us that on any particular subject, we have to go to the entire Bible to see what God wants us to understand. And then what we do then on any particular subject, whether it's baptism, whether it's the return of Christ, whether it's Christian attitude, Christian behavior, whether it's the Holy Spirit, whatever the topic is we're studying, we go from Genesis to Revelation, we gather all the information the Bible has on that topic. And then what we have then is a clear understanding Understanding of what God wants us to understand in relation to the subject, whatever it may be. If you like, we have a 3D understanding of, of uh, what God wants us to know. So this is the golden rule when it comes to biblical exegesis, when it comes to explaining Bible verses, that we go to the whole Bible. Now, very interesting, Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, he says these words, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, this is known as the Great Commission. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even until the end of the age. Jesus says here in this passage, he says that his disciples are to teach only what Jesus himself taught, not only in person, but also through the Old Testament prophets and teachers we find there. Jesus said, teach all those things that I have commanded you. This means immediately that human reasoning, human logic is gone from this. You know, uh, the idea of human traditions, church councils, ecclesiastical authority outweighing or overriding the Bible, that's gone from that. Jesus doesn't say, teach what the church councils say, or Jesus doesn't say, teach uh, what um, that ecclesiastical body says. Jesus says, teach what I taught or what you find in the Bible itself, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New. So human reasoning, human teaching, human authority has no part in the work of the disciples. They were to share what Jesus and the Old Testament prophets of old taught. Human teaching is completely shut out for there. There's no place for it as we share the truth with those around us. Today, we live in a world that's lost its moral compass. You ask any hotel owner about uh, lost sheets, lost linen, about unpaid bills, they'll tell you that we live in a, a world that's lost its moral compass. Talk about rampant theft. You know, even families today, even husbands and wives today are struggling to find a moral and ethical benchmark for themselves and also for their children in which 
church to monitor their behavior. And it seems as though children are ruling the roost today in a way that has never happened before. Uh, furthermore, the churches seem to have, have fallen silent when it comes to projecting and presenting moral and ethical values in the community today. And the churches themselves have become nothing more than social sounding boards. So is it any wonder that some of the wonderful institutions that are given to us by God from the Bible are under threat? I'm talking about the family now biblically identified as the marriage between a husband and a wife, a male and a female, capable of bringing children into the world naturally. Well, the problem is in this world today that everything is going astray and we have political loyalties that are shaping and determining the direction of well, I can only talk here about Australia, but Australia's social values. It seems to be, to, it seems to be to me that it is the libertarian media and lobby groups that are determining policy in our governments these days. These are the ones who seem to be the, the identifying the benchmark and the moral low ground by which people are to operate on in the future. And this is what we see happening today with politicians being slaves to these lobby groups and unable to make a good ethical decision any longer. And the shape for the future of Australia does look, does look grim when we consider what's happening within the home, what's happening within the community and what's happening within our political sphere at this present time. And what we are doing today when we are silent, when we refuse to respond or, or uh, raise our voices when we hear things uh, presented in an uh, unbalanced fashion, fashion is what we are doing is we are also in a way participating to the decline of Australia, this very favoured and privileged country in which we live. But things are changing dramatically in our, uh, in our land and we are of what witnessing the decay of society. However, the Bible has always challenged society. The Bible has always taken culture on. The Bible has also endeavoured to direct people in the right direction, to elevate the standards within communities, within social spheres, within family units, within individuals' lives. The Bible has continually attempted, and God's people in years gone by have attempted to do this, to raise the standard. But we seem to be slaves to the lobby groups now. We seem to be slaves to those minority groups who speak the loudest and, and blanket out all other discussions. So it comes to the point today when we we ourselves, when we feel as though the, we want to speak out against what we see in justice or immorality or unethical behaviour, the fear is that we will be labelled as out of step and narrow-minded. Has anybody experienced that here or feels that way here? Yet yeah, lots of people. You know, we have been taken hostage, if you like, by a few vocal minority groups who only make up a very tiny proportion of Australia today. However, the Bible has always challenged society, as I said, and in, in its endeavour to protect and preserve happy and healthy relationships within our land, but also to show us how we can prioritise, protect and preserve our relationships with God. Now, throughout the Bible, 
we have uh, a repetition from Genesis to Revelation that God presents his law, that is the Ten Commandments, as that which will bring the moral compass of men and women pointing in the right direction, thus bringing about a reformation in an individual's life, bringing a reformation in the family unit, and thus bringing a reformation into the community at large. We've seen it in years gone by. We've seen it in the time of the Reformation. We've seen it uh, in other periods of history where the Bible, in other countries where the Bible is not known, where the Bible has uplifted communities, elevated the position of women and children in those countries. It happens and it can happen again. But the Bible shows us from Genesis to Revelation that God's law, the Ten Commandments, is that which brings the moral compass into direction, in the right direction. You see, the Ten Commandments, if you like, are like a wall of defence around individuals, around families and around society itself. And it shows us, as I said a little earlier, how we are to treat others and how they are to treat us. Now, with that in mind, I'm going to turn to, on the screen now, of course, but we're going to be going to Exodus chapter 20. And here we have God's Ten Commandments, because it's, I, I believe that it's here that we find the remedy for society's ills. Now, there are many people who would say, you know what? The Ten Commandments are just filled with thou shalt not. The Ten Commandments are filled with negatives. It takes fun out of life. It takes the adventure out of life. It takes the thrill out of life. It takes the, the challenge out of life. That is false. That is not true. In fact, you can have all those things. You can have all the adventure. You can have all the thrills. Plus, you can have a life that is cooperating with God because God's plan for you is that you live happy, profitable, and wonderful, rich lives. That's what God wants for you. And this is why he has given us the Ten Commandments so that we can be happy, so that in the, in the home unit, we can be happy. How many husbands today avoid the family because it's an unhappy situation, because they can't communicate? But you know what happens when people cooperate with God's plan for their lives? They become better fathers. They become better parents. They become better husbands as well. It's just what happens when people start to take seriously what God has shown in his word, the Bible. So we're going to begin now. We're looking at the first, uh, the Ten Commandments, and we're going to go through each one of them. But you know what? It's all good news. And you'll see that by the time I conclude. All right. The first commandment says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have what? What does it say there? Thou shalt, or you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, says God. Being the only true God, God requires that we worship him alone. You see, God wants us to understand that he has our best interests in hand. God wants us to realize that if we make him first in our lives, everything else will naturally take place. Everything naturally will flow from that. When you connect with God and you don't allow anything to block that, when you don't allow the acquisition of wealth 
to block your relationship with God. When you don't allow the acquisition of property to block your uh, relationship with God. When God is a priority as opposed to families and wealth and work and social and amusement and all these sort of things, when God becomes a priority, you can have happiness and joy and fun in your life. But when you have God and you make God first, everything falls into place and you can have contentment and peace in your life at the same time. And that's why God says that you shall have no other gods before me because God wants us to know that you can count on him, that he's your best friend and that he is the one, if you are willing, can make your life successful and truly happy. Let's go to the second commandment. It says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What we see here is a portrait of a loving God who jealously longs to preserve his relationship with us and him and us with him. He doesn't want anything to get in our way. God does not want to imagine that that he is uh, uh, something that can be crafted by human hands and that has to be hammered into place or held down by weight bags in order for it to not blow over and then people bow down and worship him. God wants people to understand that he's not made with human hands, wood, iron, any of those sort of things. God is corporeal. God is a living God. God hears our prayers and God answers our prayer. God knows what's happening in our lives and he shapes events in our lives to protect us. And the reality is that only eternity is going to be able to show you that what God has done day by day, year by year to protect you and your family. But God wants us to understand that he's not simply a piece of wood or a piece of metal. He's a living corporeal being who actively is engaged and wants to be more fully engaged in your life. Let's go to the next one. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. God is concerned by the way his name is to be used. You see, for the drunkard and for the drug addict, for the person who is a slave to their emotions in years gone by, God has been their saviour. He's taken them from the gutter. He's changed their lives. He's transformed their lives. So in many, many people's names, the the, the name God and Jesus Christ, the immediate thought is rejoicing in happiness. It's not to be used as a slanger or swear word. It's something that can be changed, that changes people's life because God is real. Further to this, God not only says, don't misuse my name. He's also talking to Christians who claim to be followers of his, but by their behavior, by their attitude and by their talk, they misrepresent God. And God is saying here, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. In other words, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you claim to be a follower of God, it would be better that you hid your belief in God. You'd be better if you hid your belief in Jesus Christ rather than misrepresent him to the wider community or to individuals within your family and therefore slight the name of God 
God in the minds of other people. Does that make sense? In other words, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we must practice what we preach. And this commandment is about practicing what we preach, living up to the good name of God. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What a beautiful picture of God we have here. It says that God... This commandment says that God loves us so much that he wants, he has reserved a 24 hour block of time, the seventh day of the week for us so that we can spend time with him and that he can spend time with us so that we can take a breath from the the, uh, the normal routine of life, whether you're a university student and you're studying, you're preparing, you're doing tutorials, you're doing essays, whatever you're doing, whether you're a, a high pressure, you're in the high pressure job of an executive position and you're under the gun with a multitude of staff beneath you all the time. It doesn't matter what your position is in life, whether you're in high school, whether you're in primary school, it just doesn't matter. The Bible says that God has given us the seventh day in order that we can take a breath and we can enjoy God's company. And of course, you know, people will say, well, I, I meet with God every day. I pray to God every day. Of course we do. But the seventh day, the Sabbath day is God's special day. The fourth commandment also explains why we should honour the seventh day of the week because it says, it's still on the screen there, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week is the memorial to God's creative act. And that's why the commandment begins with the word remember because God knew that people would forget or people would intentionally ignore it. And worse still, people who claim to believe the Bible, people who claim to believe that God is uh, the living God and that Jesus Christ is their Savior and the Holy Spirit communicates to them, these very same people, God is speaking. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So there we have it. We have the first four commandments and you notice that each of them deals with our relationship with God. They show us how we can protect, prioritize and preserve our relationship with God. Now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the last six commandments because the last six commandments deal with our relationship with people around us and they show us how we can protect, preserve and prioritize our relationship with those around us. All right, you ready? Let's begin. So we're continuing on now and we're looking at the fifth commandment. It says, honour thy who? Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. 
God's law protects the human family because children are asked to honor their mothers and fathers. And let's be honest, when the family unit breaks down, when there's no communication, where there's no honoring of even one another within the family, that is a reflection on what's happening in society as well. Healthy families represent healthy communities. Healthy and happy families represent healthy and happy communities. So here we say, Parents, the commandment says here, it says that parents are to receive honour for their children. But I also say to the parents, you must be worthy of that honour. Don't place a stumbling block in front of your children. It's not one-way traffic. The honour that God is asking your children to give you is a reflection of the service and the love that you bestow upon your children. Let's continue on now. The the next commandment, the sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. God's law protects human life. We're made in the image of God. Unlike evolutionists and the like who say that uh, their theory, and remember evolution is just a theory, it's never been proven, it's never been tested in experimental or in a laboratory uh, situation, it's never been proved, but the theory of evolution says that millions of years ago man came on the earth, but prior to that, two million years ago, man came onto the earth, but prior to that, you know, we developed as a little, little microbe that eventually slid out of a puddle, uh, maybe there was a lightning strike that hit a lake bed and that's where life generated and eventually we uh, sprung out and eventually we swung down from the trees. The Bible says no to all that. The Bible says that we're made in the image of God. And because we're made in the image of God and because God gave us life, God's commandment here says, thou shalt not kill. Life is not to be taken. Life is not to be taken by any person because that person is made in the image of God because God's law protects human life. Let's continue on now. Thou shall not commit adultery. Well, God's law protects the sacred and the holy and the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. And in so doing, protects the health of the family and society itself. And the health or the problems of a society are only reflected in the health and the um, issues within a family. Would you agree? without any doubt. So the health or problems in that family actually have an impact on society at large. So God's law protects the family unit and says to each one of us that we are to respect that holy, sacred institution called marriage, which the Bible describes in chapter 2 and in uh, Jesus' words in, in Matthew chapter 15 as the marriage between a man and a woman with the capabilities of bringing forth children into this world. Let's go to the next commandment. The eighth commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. The eighth commandment deals with possessions. It deals with material relationships. God says, God's law here protects human ownership. And just because someone has something that I want, I can't take it because God's law protects human ownership. Thou shalt not steal. The next commandment says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. The ninth commandment deals with our 
our ethical relationships and nothing destroys a relationship more than lack of trust. Would you agree? If you don't have trust with another person, there's no relationship there. Would you agree with that? Of course, that's a reality of living in this world. So God's law says here, thou shalt not bear false witness of thy neighbor. In other words, God's law upholds the reputation of other people. God's law also frowns on gossiping. It frowns on slander. It frowns on, on um, um, misapplying events or exaggerating events uh, to make another person look bad. The bar God's law here, the ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor because nothing destroys relationships than a lack of trust. All right, the 10th commandment says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. The 10th commandment deals with the relationship we have with ourselves. You see, long before the other nine commandments could be broken, you know, people have been musing over the opportunity or the possibilities or what the ramifications might be of perhaps breaking one of those things, doing harm to someone or taking something which does not belong to them. This, this commandment here says, guard even your thoughts. Be content with such things that you have. And in fact, the word covered here, it just really means to crave the possession or the enjoyment of something or something one that belongs to someone else does that make sense so the word covet means just to crave the enjoyment or the possession of something or someone that belongs to someone else God says be content with the things that you have as we consider the ten commandments all ten of them we have to admit that there is nobody in the universe more committed to healthy, happy relationships with God. The Ten Commandments by, begin by protecting and protect, prioritizing our relationship with God. The next six commandments deal with how we can protect and preserve and prioritize our relationship with other people around us. In other words, the Ten Commandments show us how we're to deal with other people around us and how we're to honor God in the world in which we do today. Even though the Ten Commandments have been a part of this world from the beginning of this world, they are not out of date. They are as relevant today as when we first came across them in the beginning of this world. God's law is the very thing that men and women need today to keep the, to bring the society back on track and to help the family unit. You know, some, some of you may not know it, but the Ten Commandments themselves are the only part of the Bible which were written by God himself. Moses didn't write the Ten Commandments. They're the only part that were written by God itself. And in fact, they were written on stone. Let's look at Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31, and we're looking at verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony the tablets of stone inscribed by who? The finger of 
God. The Ten Commandments written by God himself on tablets of stone, they weren't written in the sand. They weren't written on vellum. They weren't written on papyrus, which all those things can perish or pass away. They were written in solid rock to highlight their perpetuity, that they were to remain unique to one generation, but they were for every generation. And in fact, when we go to the New Testament, we actually see that Jesus clearly believed that. And in fact, when we look at the Ten Commandments, the rock, the writing on the rock or the writing in stone by the finger of God highlights their permanent, everlasting, eternal worth to all men and women of all generations. In fact, when we go to the New Testament, Jesus said exactly the same thing. And Jesus emphasizes their supreme value to men and women. Let's go now. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. And it says, Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Remember the charge against Jesus was he's trying to replace the law. He's trying to destroy the law. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to do that. The law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus is talking about two things here. He's talking about prophecies which pointed to him and the way that he fulfilled them, how he lived them out, but also in relation to the Ten Commandments, the laws which had been broken by mankind, Jesus came to live them out in the full and he, he lived them perfectly through his entire earthly sojourn. And then we read this, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. See, Jesus says here, he asserted that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. And as I said earlier, it means to live to the full. But Jesus tells us how long the law, that is the Ten Commandments, are to last. Because he, he, he tells us that the Ten Commandments are to last as long as the heaven and the earth remain. Jesus says that not one jot or one tittle will be removed from the Ten Commandments. And in fact, the jot or the tittle is referring to the yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the jot and the jot is just a character identifying a letter. It's just a bit like the dotting of the I or a crossing of the T. And Jesus says here, in regard to the Ten Commandments, he says not even the smallest letter is to be removed from the Ten Commandments. Jesus says that not even the smallest character, the dotting of the I, or the crossing of the T is to be removed from the Ten Commandments. And then we ask the question, how long is this to last? Well, Jesus told us, Jesus says, as long as heaven and earth, Jesus says, as long as you can go outside and you can see the sky and you can kick the ground, Jesus says that the Ten Commandments are still all in force. God's law is still there. We don't have to have any doubt whatsoever. Now, some people may say, are you really sure that Jesus is talking about the, the uh, Ten Commandments there? But you know what? What we do with any legitimate Bible study is we allow the Bible to interpret itself, but we also look at the context in which the verse or verses are found. And in the same chapter, not a few verses later, Jesus says this in verse 21. He says, have you not heard that it was said of them of old, thou shalt not kill? So where is Jesus quoting from here? Jesus is quoting from the Ten Commandments. 
But in the next verse, in verse 27, a few verses on, Jesus says, you've heard it said of, of, by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. So where is Jesus quoting from here? He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. So the point is that Jesus was speaking about the Ten Commandments when he was referring to the fact that they were not to be replaced, that he did not come to destroy, but to live out. There was an occasion during Jesus' ministry that a man came to him and he he said to Jesus, Lord, what should I do to have eternal life? It's a good question, isn't it? Don't you think it's a good question? I think it's a really good question to ask, particularly when Jesus was there. Notice what happens here. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good things should I do that I may have eternal life? And he said to him, that is, Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou will enter into life, what does he say there? Keep the commandments. And he said to unto him, Which? And Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Honour thy mother and thy father, and thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Jesus was asked, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. Well, the man wanted more clarification. So what law do you mean? What commandments should I keep? And Jesus begins to quote from where? He quotes from the Ten Commandments. Now, it's interesting to me that some people, some denominations like the Baptists and Pentecostals and the like, they say the Ten Commandments finished at the cross. We don't need them anymore. But that doesn't match this answer here because if that was the case, then Jesus would have said, now, this is what you are to do. You are to keep all the Ten Commandments until I die and then forget about it. Don't worry about it. It doesn't make any sense at all. You know, Jesus knew that the Ten Commandments were going to continue on well after he was um, uh, crucified, well after his ascension, because Jesus says, till heaven and earth pass away. So the Ten Commandments will always be in force. And uh, we see that very clearly from this passage here. No matter what some people preach, no matter what some people teach, Jesus didn't say that the Ten Commandments were old hat. In fact, Jesus believed that the, the Ten Commandments were as irrelevant in his time as they would be for every succeeding and successive generation. Now, you know, when you study the, old te- uh, the New Testament, there were times in Jesus' ministry when people tried to trap Jesus. You know that, don't you? The lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you know, they'd bring someone up to ask some questions, hoping to trap Jesus. Well, this occurred also in Matthew chapter 22. And we find there is a lawyer who has been... Um, Uh, organized, if you like, by the Pharisees to ask Jesus a very tricky question which is intended to trap him. And this is what the question was. The Pharisees have got the lawyer and they say, here's the question. They They said, Lord, what is the most important commandment of them all? That's the question that the lawyer asked. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And on these two commandments hang all the law and the commandments. So this is Jesus' response to this lawyer. He says, he says, which is the most important commandment? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor with yourself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus respond in that fashion? Because if Jesus had have said, uh, you shall not kill, they would have said, well, what about honoring your mother and father? If Jesus had have said, uh, thou shalt not bow down to any false image, Jesus would have said, well, what about uh, uh, the Sabbath day? Or what about uh, taking the Lord's name in vain? If Jesus had have identified one particular commandment, then the lawyer would have used that against him and would have endeavored to humiliate him in front of the audience that were there at that time. But what does Jesus do? He he summarizes all of the Ten Commandments by saying, love God with all your heart, mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there are people who say within the Christian fraternity today that what Jesus was doing there, he was actually replacing the Ten Commandments with two brand new commandments. But if you go back and study the Bible properly, you actually discover that that is not the case. You actually discover that Jesus is reminding the Jews of something that they had forgotten. You see, if they were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, you see Moses was instructed by God in this fashion. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy might. And if they were to go back a little bit further, they'd also see Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where Jesus says, Thou sh you shall not avenge nor take, bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but you shall love thy neighbor as yourself. You see, what Jesus was doing there, Jesus was simply quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. When Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind and soul, all Jesus was doing was saying, summarizing the first four commandments and when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself that Jesus was just summarizing the last six commandments they weren't new commandments they were old commandments that the, the Jews had forgotten and they summarized the ten commandments which is why Jesus said upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets for example Let's think about this now. If you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you'll keep the first commandment and you won't have any other gods before, before you. Before you. Uh, if you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you won't bow down to images and idols, which is the second commandment. If you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you'll keep the third commandment. You won't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And if you love God with all your heart, mind and soul, you'll keep the fourth commandment, which is remembering the Sabbath day. So when it says love God with all your heart, mind and soul, Jesus is just saying, summarizing the first, ten, uh, first four commandments. But... If you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus is just summarizing the last six commandments. See, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the fifth commandment, which is honor your mother and father. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you shall keep the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the eighth commandment, you will not steal. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the ninth commandment, you won't bear false witness against your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not covet your neighbor's possessions. All Jesus was doing was summarizing 
the Ten Commandments. And it's just as simple and as plain as that. Jesus wasn't replacing the Ten Commandments. What Jesus was doing was summarizing the Ten Commandments and showing the Jews something that they had forgotten. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, upon all these, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, the Apostle Paul also believed in the importance of the Ten Commandments. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Own no man anything but to love one another, for he that love another has fulfilled the law. What do you mean by that, Paul? Well, he goes on. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. What, where is he quoting from here? Paul's quoting from the Ten Commandments. In other words, Paul believed that the Ten Commandments were still authoritative, authoritative in his time. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The references to the Ten Commandments by the Apostle Paul here shows that the validity of the Ten Commandments still operating in his day there. And there are many other references in the New Testament regarding the Ten Commandments. We have the letter from the, from the Romans, which was written around, or a letter by Paul to the Romans, which was written around 56 AD. That's 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened in 31 AD. The Ten Commandments are still in, in force. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, what does it say there? He says, keep my commandments. Now that's clear, isn't it? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, uh, the, the reality is that love always or, or following Jesus always leads to obedience because it's the heartfelt response of what Jesus has done for us. You know, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's solid. You know, this idea that you can please God by waving to God, or you can toot the car horn to show that you love God, or that you smile because you love God, or you wear your jeans on this particular day to you love God. No, no, no. That's all nonsense. That's all fluff and bubble. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, you ladies out there, if your husband, when he was courting you, if all he did whenever he saw you was just smiled at you or just waved at you or tooted the car horn as he drove by, would you have gone out with him? Would you have spent time with him? Would you be married to him today? Probably not. Highly unlikely because your husband or your boyfriend who became your fiance, who became your husband, he showed you that he loved you. He did things to prove that he loved you. He, took, he bought you things. He took you to nice places. He said nice things about you. And I hope that that continues on today. You see, love is a verb. Love is an action word. And when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, that's an action word. Jesus says, you show your love for me by your action and you keep my commandments. But the question is, what are the commandments of Jesus? What was he referring to? Now, we already know that he's referring to the Ten Commandments, but let's just pretend we don't. Let's pretend this is all brand new to us. Let's pretend that, well, I know it's, <laughs> I know it's all brand new to you now, but 
our presentation now has been going for around 40 minutes, I suppose, something like that. But we know that uh, there's certain information that you have. But let's find out now what Jesus was referring to when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we just go to the next chapter in John. And in John chapter 15, verse 10, Jesus says this, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Okay, well, that's simple. If you keep Jesus' commandments, you abide in his love even as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So what were the father's commandments? Well, they were the Ten Commandments. Therefore, what were the, ten comm- what were the commandments that Jesus kept? They were the Ten Commandments. That's the obvious corollary, isn't it? If Jesus kept his father's commandments, the commandments that Jesus wants us to keep are the Ten Commandments. If you love me, keep the commandments. Let's Go to the last book of the Bible now and we're going to Revelation 14 verse 12 and it says, here is the patience of the saints. Now this is describing God's people in the last days and in fact, Revelation chapter 14 is talking about the last generation of God's people. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. See, Jesus uh, here, it's John in vision, he hears these words. He hears these words. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In other words, these people in the last days, they keep God's commandments not all in order to be saved, but because they are saved. You see, these people keep the commandments of God, all 10 of them, because they know that they are saved by their relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, their faith relationship with Jesus Christ recognizes that they have been saved by grace and their loving response to being saved by grace is to do those things that are pleasing to God. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments just as I've kept my father's commandments. So what is it that Jesus wants me to do for my own sake, for my wife's sake, for my children's sake, for my family, my wider family's sake? God wants me to keep the commandments. You see, it's not salvation by works, it's salvation by faith, if you like. It's salvation in recognizing that my salvation is completely dependent upon what Jesus has done for me. My salvation is based on the meritorious act that Jesus was able to uh, create for me when he died on the cross. I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by works, but my loving response is that I keep the commandments of God. And that's what Jesus is telling John here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Now, I want to explain it this way, just as we conclude. Imagine this. Imagine a man's in prison. He's been found guilty of murder and he's on death row. He's guilty in every sense of the word. He's waiting for the executioner to call, so to speak. But his lawyer comes across some some circumstantial evidence. He takes it to the appeal court. The appeal court looks at the information and says, right, okay, we're going to reverse the decision that was made still recognizing that the man was guilty of murder. So the evidence shows that he's guilty of murder, but other evidence shows that circumstances have changed the final verdict. So 
They go to um, the courts and the courts, to, uh, the magistrate repeals the sentence and this man can go free. He can leave the prison now. He can walk out of the prison and a policeman cannot stop him. Why? Because he's been given grace. The law's still in place, but he has been given grace. He now can go out. He can go to the restaurant. He can buy a car. He can go to the shops. He can purchase things. No problem whatsoever because he's been given grace. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of transgressing the law, but the law has been superseded by a situation that has arisen uh, based on the circumstantial evidence. Consequently, this man can go free. But because this man has been given grace, can he just go through red lights? Can he rob? Can he steal? Can he burgle homes now that he's been given grace? No, he cannot because the law is still intact even though he has been given grace. And the same applies for us. We have been given grace. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, says the Apostle Paul. Nevertheless, despite the fact that we're on death row because we're sinners because of what Jesus has done for us and taking our place, we now are saved by grace, but the law is still in place. Paul says this, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Don't think for a moment that anybody who believes the Ten Commandments are important uh, are saved by keeping the commandments because people understand that the law, the Ten Commandments, point sin out in our lives. It just shows where we're going wrong. We recognize where we're going wrong. We fall to our knees at the foot of the cross and we confess our sins to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the Ten Commandments, not to save anyone. Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. This is in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. So Paul says, I wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law. And he's, he begins to quote from the Ten Commandments. Look, he says, for I wouldn't have known what covetous was uh, unless the Lord said, thou shalt not covet. Where is he quoting from there? He's simply quoting from the Ten Commandments because the purpose of the law is not to save us. It just shows us where we're going wrong and then we fall to our knees, confess our sins and freely forgiven by Jesus Christ because we're saved by grace. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, we're told, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to where? that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But you notice the way this verse starts in verse 14. It says, blessed are those who do his commandments. These are God's commandments. So the point being that even in Revelation chapter 22, the last book and the last chapter of the Bible shows us the importance of the Ten Commandments. And the Bible makes it very clear that heaven is going to be filled with commandment keepers, not because they have done it to be saved, but it is their loving response because they have been saved and recognize that they are saved by grace. The Ten Commandments are a wall of protection for God's people. The war, the Ten Commandments are a wall of protection for the family unit. The wall, the Ten Commandments is God's law to help you to have happy, full, flourishing and uh, productive lives. And God really wants you to understand that the reason why he's given you these laws is because of these Ten Commandments, because he wants you to, fulfill, to, to fulfill everything that you are capable of fulfilling 
in a happy and in a way that doesn't damage other people around us. Imagine if our country here, Australia, had no laws. Imagine the chaos. That's exactly the same for God. God gave us the laws so it would be an antidote to chaos, that it would be an antidote to lawlessness. All right. Next week, we're going to be looking at on what day do Christians worship? It's a very interesting study. What we're going to do is we're going to look at some Bible prophecy. We're going to track history and you're going to find that it's absolutely fascinating. Now, for those people at home who are watching this on live stream or on the Internet, on YouTube, whatever, you can get all of this information by going to the address that's on the screen. Just go to theorchardmelbourne.org.au or go to info at theorchardmelbourne.org.au and you'll contact us and then request the materials from session number four. We will send them out to you wherever you live in the world and you'll have them no time at all. All right, well, why don't we finish our time now with the prayer. Let's bow our heads and we'll ask the Lord's blessing as we go our separate ways. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your love, your care and your protection upon us. And we just want to recognize the importance of the Ten Commandments that you gave them to us, Father, so that we could have happy and fruitful lives. And I just pray for those people in the audience today or this evening and those people who are watching at home or on their device, they may be traveling on the tram, they may be in the city office place somewhere that are watching these presentations. I pray that they would recognize the importance of the Ten Commandments in their lives lives and that they would go forward in faith serving you and loving you father so we thank you again father for jesus christ our lord we thank you for the witness and the ministry of the holy spirit upon our consciences and the way that he touches us and guides us and directs us and finally father we thank you for you for your loving care for us in the name of jesus christ i pray amen Listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Have you ever watched birds flying and wished you could do that? How many changes would have to be made to a human body before we could simply leap into the air and fly over mountains on our own power? You're probably thinking of quite a few changes, but imagine how many more changes would be required to make a reptile capable of flight. Yet Darwinists claim reptiles were modified into birds. If that occurred, then at least some of the innumerable intermediate forms between reptiles and birds should be recorded in the fossil record. This new display in the GRI building presents what is actually in the fossil record. Bird fossils exhibit a common fossil pattern. They appear suddenly and fully formed to fly. What about other flying organisms? No matter what the creature, flying is not a trivial achievement. It requires many adaptations that should be reflected in fossils. Yet when we look at insects, those that fly appear fully formed to fly without obvious intermediates in lower layers. Pterosaurs exhibit the same pattern of sudden appearance, fully formed to fly, and so do bats. Look at this cast 
of the lowest fossil bat and compare it with this modern bat skeleton. Does the fossil look more primitive? The fossil bat even appears to have been capable of echolocation just as modern bats are. The purpose of displays like this is not to engage in complex debates, but to present the data as they are so that the patterns can be clearly seen. In this particular case, the pattern of sudden appearance of organisms fully formed to fly is clear and occurs in all groups of organisms that engage in powered flight. The pattern does not support Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, but is consistent with the idea of creation as recorded in the Bible. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.